Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to begin where we left off last week in verse 14. We're going to work our way down through verse 24 this morning. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 14. As we jump back in here, we need to kind of remind ourselves of, of where we've been in Genesis 3. You'll remember in Chapter 3, Satan has worked his way into the story, and as he shows up on the scene, he uses tactics that he still uses today, that he's going to attack the truthfulness of God's word, he's going to deny the judgment of God, and he's going to attack the goodness of God. He's going to convince Adam and Eve uh, that God's word is not true, uh, sin is not that bad, and God is not good. He's going to take that which is evil and he's going to make it appear as though it's good. And he's going to take that which is good and make it appear as though it's evil. And really at the heart of what he does is he tells Eve, God's holding out on you. That in order for you to really know joy and fulfillment, you've got to spread your wings. You've got to jump the fence of God's boundaries. You've got to follow your heart and do whatever you want to do. And Eve is lured in. It's a powerful picture because at this point, the Word of God is no longer guiding Eve's life. What is guiding her life? We see it as she looks at that fruit and she begins to think about it. What's guiding her life is her emotions, her intellect, and her heart. And so she's lured in and she takes that fruit and then she hands it to her husband. And what does she learn? She learns very quickly that Satan has lied to her. He has promised her that you'll become like God, and all that they have come to the realization of is that they are now guilty. All that they are left with is guilt and shame and fear. And sin changes everything. At that moment, what do they do? They do what sinful man does. They're going to try to cover up their guilt, aren't they? They're going to try to cover up their guilt with these fig leaves. People are still trying to cover up their guilt today with religious acts or whatever else they want to do. And then they're hiding from God and their foolishness. Now they think that they can hide from God. And so this man and woman who've been made by God and for God, they're now running from God. And then what happens? You got the blame game begins. It's everybody else's fault but mine. Does all this sound familiar? This is sinful man that we uh, try to cover our guilt. We're running from God and we're blaming everybody else but ourselves. It's a sad picture. You see man there and the woman in their guilt, in their shame. And what does God do? This is beautiful. God comes for them, doesn't he? They're hiding, and God initiates. He comes to them in a great act of mercy. He could have banished them to darkness. He could have kicked them out. He could have banished them to darkness forever and say, that's it. It's all done. But what does he do? He goes to Adam and says, where are you? And you know what we looked at last week? He's drawing Adam out, isn't he? He's saying, come on out in the light here, Adam. We know you're guilty. You know you're guilty. Let's own up to our sinfulness and we can move forward. There can be restoration of the, of the relationship. But before there can be restoration, there's got to be confession. You've got to own up to who you are. And so what do we see in this? We see that God is a God who loves. God is a God who seeks and saves the lost. 
but he's also a God of justice. And what we see here is that sin has consequences. Listen to me this morning. Sin always has consequences. And so what we see moving forward in verses 14 through 24, we're going to see the judgment of God. Because there's some things that are now going to change as a result of their sin. And those changes affect every one of us in this room. Because Adam and Eve are the first parents. We all trace it back in some way, shape, or form to this couple right here. So with that in mind, let's pray together. Then we'll work our way through the text. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come to your word. God, I pray right now during this time as we focus our attention upon you and your word, you would help us, God, to not be distracted in this moment. Help us to fix our thoughts on you. Holy Spirit, we ask you to move, to make the word of God alive. Make the truth of your word plain to us this morning that we might see you for who you are. We might see our sin for what it is, and we might know how we can be restored. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when it comes to God's judgment, he will first address the serpent. And really what he's addressing is Satan, who is behind the serpent. So look at verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So the serpent who is inhabited by Satan is now cursed above all the other animals. That Really the serpent is the only part of God's creation that's physiologically post-fall going to be changed. And we don't know what the serpent looked like pre-fall. A lot of conjecture about what the serpent looked like. But what we do know is post-fall, God says, now you are destined for the rest of your life to, to crawl on your belly and to eat dust. And really the picture there is that, uh, that it's a picture throughout Scripture. In fact, in the Old Testament we see references to this. But when a person is flat on their face in the dirt, it's a picture of total defeat. And really what we see here is this serpent is now going to be, become a symbol or a reminder that this is what happens to those who are used by Satan for his purposes. And even more than that, you could say it's a, it's a constant reminder of Satan's uh, final uh, and eternal judgment, his total defeat. Like the rainbow that God gives us to remind us that he will not flood the earth again by water, the serpent is a reminder this is what happens to those who are used by Satan. And then I think what happens in verse 15 is now God speaks directly to Satan who is behind the serpent. And he says, I'll put enmity in verse 15 between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now it's important to remember that at this moment Satan thinks that he is one. Satan thinks that he, is, he has ruined God's plan and he has overthrown God's sovereignty. Has Satan thwarted God's plans at this moment? Is God now in heaven saying, oh my goodness, what are we going to do now? No, God is still sovereign. And now God looks at Satan and he says to him, and let me give you a picture of what I think as I was praying on this. The movie Rocky Five. I'm bringing Rocky Five in this morning. Rocky Five. You remember this one? Tommy Gunn. And Tommy Gunn at the end of that movie He's coming back, and he's trying to pick a fight with Rocky. And you remember what happens? Rocky's brother-in-law, Polly, the goof up, you know, he goes over, and he pushes Tommy Gunn and says, you're trash. 
And old Tommy Gunn goes, wow, and pops him. Polly falls on the ground. Rocky runs over. You okay, Polly? You okay? And then Rocky looks up at Tommy Gunn. You remember what he says? One of my favorite lines. He says, you knock him down. Now let's see you try knocking me down. That's my best Rocky, all right? It's the best I got. Do you know what God is saying right here to Satan at this moment? You did pretty good with the man and the woman, but now you picked a fight with me. And he says, now you're going to have a battle on your hands, and I'm going to tell you how the battle is going to end before it even gets started. And he says to Satan, now there's going to be enmity. I'm going to put enmity, a conflict between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He is saying to Satan, you know what? You think you've won. You think now they love you and they hate me. But I'm going to provide a way to bring them back to myself so that they will once again love me and they're going to hate you. And now there's going to be this this conflict that's going to run between the children of the devil and the people of God. And we're going to see this narrative of conflict run throughout the Old Testament. In fact, in the very next chapter, you're going to see Satan move in the heart of Cain. And he's going to kill his brother Abel. And you're going to think, oh my goodness, Satan has won. But what do we see? God says, not so so fast. And he raises up another son, doesn't he, named Seth. And the battle's on. You see it all throughout. You can't help but read the story of Joseph and not see this narrative conflict. You, You read the story of Joseph and you're left thinking. It almost appears that there's some kind of malicious force that's trying to take Joseph out. And in accordance with this, what do we know? There is a malicious force trying to take him out, trying to thwart God's plans. And yet what will God do? He will raise Joseph up. It's the, it's the narrative of conflict that occurs between the people of Israel and the Egyptians. It's the same narrative of conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines. It's David and Goliath. David and Goliath is not just a story about two men. It's a story about God's conflict between the people of God and the children of the devil conflicting. We see it run throughout. You see it in the book of Daniel. It's probably no more powerfully pictured in the book of Esther. When what is Satan trying to do? We'll just wipe the people of God out and we'll cut off the seed of the woman and we'll win. What does God do? He preserves his people through a man named Mordecai and Esther. We see this narrative of conflict. And what do you see? God always wins, doesn't he? Because God is still sovereign. His plans have not been thwarted. And what he's going to say here, he's going to say that I am going to win because I'm going to send someone. And so what he says is, I'm going to put, if you look again at verse 15, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he, note that word, it's a singular pronoun, it's a masculine pronoun, meaning God is going to send one singular man. And what is he going to do? Literally, he's going to crush your head, speaking to Satan, he's going to crush your head and you will bruise him on the heel. That there is coming the seed of the woman. This is important. That there's another Adam coming. But he's going to be no ordinary Adam. He'll be the seed of woman. He will not be the seed of man. 
meaning he's going to have an earthly mother, but no earthly father. He will be of divine origin. He's going to be untainted by the sin of Adam, and he's going to sneak in behind enemy lines, and he is going to crush Satan on the head. He will defeat him. And who is this seed? The rest of the Bible is a narrowing of the focus on this coming conqueror, the seed of the woman. We say, well, he's going to come through Seth, and then, then through Noah, and then through Shem, and then through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, and Jesse, and David. And ultimately, who is it? It's Jesus. All the Old Testament points us to one person. All the Old Testament prophets, all the Old Testament laws create for us a doorframe through which only Christ can enter. And where does it begin? Right here in Genesis 3. Folks, Christianity is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And the first prophecy of Christ occurs one breath after the introduction of sin and the fall. Don't Ever let anybody tell you that Christianity begins in the first century A.D.? A lot of people out there will tell you, well, Christianity is not the oldest religion. Listen, you want to know where Christianity begins? Right here after the introduction. In fact, you want to get technical, you can tell them that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So that makes Christianity the hands down infinitely older than any other religion in the world. In fact, you can say that justification by faith begins right here. Because Adam and Eve are not going to be saved on the basis of their works. Because now they are sinners. Adam and Eve are going to be saved on the basis in trusting of the seed of the woman that God will send who will conquer sin, Satan, and death. And in that way, you can say that Adam and Eve are Christians. Now, isn't that awesome? And where does it all begin? Right here in Genesis 3. Folks, if this doesn't get, ex- get you excited about studying God's word, something's wrong with you. Only God can tell you with specificity the end of the story before the story ever begins. How do we know that this is a divine book? Because human minds don't come up with this stuff. And so God gives us the end at the beginning. But here's the other question that we got to ask ourselves. How will, he's going to win the victory, but how will he win the victory? He says he's going to crush the head of the serpent and his heel will be crushed or bruised, whatever your translation is there. And in order for there to be a crushed head and in order for there to be a crushed heel, what has to happen? Blood has to be spilled. Powerful picture that we get here of the gospel. The salvation and freedom from sin, Satan, and death will only be possible by means of sacrifice. The author of Hebrews says, apart from the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. God is telling us that victory will only be possible on the basis of the seed of the woman who will sacrifice himself for our freedom. And so not only in the Old Testament do we see a narrative of conflict, but we also see a narrative of sacrifice. You remember Abraham, he takes Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him. And you remember the little boy Isaac, what does he say to his dad? I see the, the wood for the fire, but where's the lamb? And what does Abraham say? He says, well, God himself will provide. They go up on the, ram, the, the, the hill and God provides a ram in the thicket. But that question really governs the rest of the book. And the Old Testament is, where is the lamb? 
Where is the coming sacrifice? In fact, when God is leading the, the Israelites out of Egypt, what does he do? He, puts, he tells them to put blood over the doorposts of a lamb. Does God need the blood of a lamb to get a million people out of Egypt? No. Why is he doing that? He's teaching the nation of Israel, in order for you to go free, someone has to die. In fact, Isaiah 53, he's telling the nation that in order for us to have restoration and redemption, we need a suffering serpent who will be, serpent who will be like a, a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that's silent before its shears. We need a sacrificial lamb. We need a leader who will lay down his life. He'll crush Satan, but he'll be wounded in the transaction. It's why it's so powerful when you get to the New Testament and John the Baptist sees Jesus coming up over the horizon and he looks at Christ and what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you know what John the Baptist is saying? Here's the seed of the woman. This is the one. And he's going to defeat Satan, but he's going to be wounded in the process. All of that powerful picture that will run throughout the Bible begins right here in Genesis 3.15. So God pronounces judgment upon Satan. And in his message of judgment towards Satan, we find a message of hope and freedom and redemption. And then God turns his attention to the woman. Look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I'll greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you'll bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. He looks at the woman, and he says, uh, now in this role of childbearing that I, that I uniquely created to you, now there, there's, there's going to be pain. That you're going to have a, a brush with death. And God provides a, a painful reminder of the consequences of sin. And this beautiful gift, there's going to be pain, and not just pain in the process of childbearing, but you're, you're going to have pain in that you're bringing something painful into the world. Don't we know this, parents, when we bring that child in the world, we realize pretty quickly, something's wrong with this kid. That baby starts crying and screaming in the hospital, just a powerful reminder, there's another sinner that's been brought in the world, Right? Psalm 51, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And what God is saying is you're going to have to lead that child to trust in Christ. And that child-rearing process, oh, it will be a great blessing, but at times it will also, it will also at times be painful. Can I get an amen, parents? It's not going to be easy anymore. In the home, you're going to have struggle because that child is a sinner, and so he says that you're going to have pain in this. But then he says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now in chapter 2, uh, where we saw the introduction of marriage, there were no commands in the introduction of God's design to marriage. No commands for the husband to love his wife. No commands for the wife to submit or respect her husband. They kind of have this understanding of their roles, and there's this natural respect and tenderness. But now we have a mandate from God, don't we? Now we have a mandate that this man will rule. And this is a good reminder that God's design for marriage doesn't change to now fit our sinful nature. Do we not need to be reminded of this today? That just because we're sinners doesn't mean God's design for marriage changes. God says this is the design. 
And this man, he will lead, he will rule. And why does God give this mandate? Because he says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband. And you might ask yourself, well, how can a woman's or a wife's desire for her husband, how could that be a bad thing? But as we'll look at, as we get into chapter 4, in chapter 4, verse 7, when God addresses Cain, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you. That word desire in chapter 4, verse 7, it's the same word that's used here in Genesis 3, right here. Is, is When we look in chapter 4, verse 7, is sin's desire over our life, is that a good thing? No. Because what is sin desiring to do? It's desiring to overpower us. And in that understanding of the word, we see more clearly, Eve will no longer naturally tend to respect and support her husband in a complimentary way. She will desire to compete with him for the reins of the home. And now, rather than having this complementary relationship, now there's going to be this competitive nature because of our sin, and there's going to be the struggle in the marriage relationship, and both the man and the woman are going to constantly have to die to themselves in their own flesh and live in trust towards God's perfect design in order for them to have the harmony that God created for them. Boy, what a powerful picture. And then God turns his attention to the man And I I just, the way I picture this, God's been speaking to the serpent, and then he's speaking to the woman, and I think the whole time, man's starting to get really nervous. He's getting to me in just a moment, and he saves the man for last. And look at what he says in verses 17 through 19. Then, Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. A powerful, powerful statement of the man. He starts out by saying, because you listened. What was man called to do? He was called to lead and to love and to protect. Instead of leading, he now turned to listening Instead of being the active leader that God has called him to be, he's become a passive listener. If you look in chapter uh, 3, the first six verses, what do you see the man do? Nothing. In fact, in verse 6, you could say all that he does is eat, which is a pretty good mixture of men, you know? Nothing. Nothing but eat. Powerful picture. God is saying to Adam, Adam, you dropped the ball. Instead of being the active leader that I called you to be, you became a passive passive listener. And as Satan crept his way into your home and into your marriage, you went AWOL. I uniquely created you, Adam. I assigned you the responsibility of loving and leading and protecting your marriage and your home, and you wimped out. When you should have stepped up and stepped in the gap and laid down your life to protect your wife, you stood down and you are accountable. I don't know if we're going to spend more time on this next week. We don't have time this morning. But listen, men. 
We've got to stop being passive in our leadership and start initiating to step up and be the men that God has called us to be, loving our wives, protecting our homes spiritually because the buck stops with us. If your home and your marriage is not where you want it to be, it starts with you. And we need to start setting an example for the generation that's coming after us because there's a lot of young men who are not being the men that God has called them to be. And if you're single this morning, can I just encourage you? You may not have a wife yet, but hopefully one day you will. And maybe you need to get away from the video games and all the other junk that's out there and start actively being the man that God has called you to be so that you'll be prepared when God brings you the woman. So we gotta do a better job we got to do a better job. So God speaks to the man. And now in this blessing that God had given to him of work, God says you're going to have a love-hate relationship with work. What was intended to be your blessing and give you life and work is still a good thing that God has called us to do. But now there's going to be sweat. There's going to be toil. There's going to be pain. And ultimately what he say? It's going to end in death, won't it? Dust you came, dust you will return. He's pronouncing the judgment of death because the wages of sin is what? Death. Look at verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Do you know what I think is occurring here? Adam is beginning to regain of some of his original design because you know what I think is probably going on in Adam's heart because he's now a sinner. You know what's happening? He's probably thinking this is all the woman's fault. But you know what's beautiful here? Instead of this man disparaging his wife, he's now going to honor her. He's going to say, you're Eve. You know what Eve means? The word just simply means, all it means is life. And I don't know, maybe he's reflecting on God's words to Satan when he said, from the seed of the woman, that he realizes now, it's not gonna, I'm not going to accomplish salvation. But this woman is going to bring life. She's life. And he looks at Eve And he says, listen, I'm weak and you're weak, but you're life. And I want to honor you in this role that God has given to you. And then verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Powerful picture. In order for God to make skins of an animal, what first had to happen? Animal had to die. And I don't know exactly how this went down, but let me tell you how I think it went down in my mind. Do you remember God told Adam and Eve, what, you eat of that tree, what's going to happen? You're dead, dead, aren't you? You eat of that tree, you're dead, dead. And you know what I think Adam and Eve are probably thinking at this moment as God has come to them? This is probably it for us. We're about to die. That's what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. But what does God do? I think God, and this is just my picture, if this is not what happened, let it fall by the way. But you know what I think God did? He went over and took a lamb. And he took that lamb. And you remember, this is a man and a woman. They've never, ever seen death before, have they? never seen anything die and God took a lamb and I don't know how he did it but blood flowed how do you think Adam and Eve felt I don't know but I think they were probably thinking I think they were sorrowful and I think they were probably thinking that's what we deserved we should have died 
That lamb did nothing wrong. That animal did nothing wrong. That animal was innocent. We're the ones that goofed. But what is God doing? Again, he's teaching the man and the woman. Sin has to be punished. I'm a just God. I can't overlook sin. Somebody's got to die. But I love you. And he's picturing for them a picture in the Old Testament we're going to see over and over and over and over and over again that I'm going to send somebody who's going to shed his blood in your place and he's going to cover you in his righteousness so that now you can be the men and women that I have called you to be, that I've designed you to be. Look at verse 22 very quickly. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and and live forever. God says they become like us. When us, let's talk about the Trinity there again. Here we're seeing the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They become like us. But this man, now what does he understand? He under, the man now understands something he never should have understood. Now he understands evil. He understands sin. He has an understanding of, of evil. And, and now he cannot live on in immortality. Uh, let me just ask you, is immortality a good thing? Well, it depends on which state of being you're referring to. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go on living forever in this sinful body here in Lenexa, Kansas. I like Lenexa, but I don't want to live here eternally in this body. I'm getting tired of the struggle with sin. I long for a new heaven. I long for a new earth. I long for a new body, glorified body, where I rule and reign with Christ. That's good immortality. This, not so much. So we're going to have to block him. And right here we see that Adam and Eve, they're going to have to die in what? They're going to have to die in faith, aren't they? Just like us. Verses 23 and 24. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, the east of the garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim, the flaming swords, which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. God drives him out. Powerful picture, isn't it? You can almost picture Adam saying, can't we just have a little piece of the garden still, you know? Can we not just camp out here? And God says, no. Adam, you can't. Adam, you can't go back, brother. Everything's changed. And just in case Adam's tempted to go back in his own power, he sets up a guard, these cherubim. First mentioning of angels in Scripture when the flaming swords. And what is God telling Adam there? You can't come back on the basis of your own merit. Listen to me this morning. You try to get to God on the basis of any other religion or any other way than Jesus, and you are met with death, and literally you are met with hell. Are you okay with that this morning? Because that's exactly what God is saying. He's telling Adam and Eve, there's no way back on your own. In fact, in the the temple, the Holy of Holies was guarded by a huge veil, and you know what they put on the front of that veil? Cherubim with flaming swords. But do you remember when Christ dies on the cross, what happens? That veil's torn from top to bottom. And you know what God says? Come on. There's a way back. But it only comes through Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to Father but through me. You know, really, when you get to the end of this story, it's kind of a sad story, isn't it? Paradise lost. 
Adam and Eve are walking away. I don't, I don't know if they had little sacks of stuff or whatever, but they're walking away from the Garden of Eden as a result of their own sin. No one to blame but themselves. And you know what? Moving on from here, you've got no more pictures of God walking with the man and the woman in the cool of the garden. Not going to see any more of those pictures. And on the basis, the, the basis of their life moving forward is now going to be what? They're not going to walk by sight. They're going to walk by what? They're going to walk by faith now. They're going to have to trust God. Do you know what's going to happen in their life moving forward from now? They're constantly going to ask themselves, are we going to trust God in who he is and what he said, or are we going to believe the lies of Satan? That will be the choice of their life forever, and they're going to have to go to the grave one day trusting in the Redeemer that God promised to send who would save them from their sins. And you know, really, in many ways, we're in the same predicament. Although we have greater clarity on who the Redeemer is, the reality is all of us have sin in our past. Amen? We've all done things that we regret. All th- we've all done things that we wish we could go back and undo. All done things that we wish we could change. But the reality is, can we go back? No going back. Sin changes everything. But does God leave us in a place of hopelessness and despair? No. He gives us a hope and a promise of his word that I've sent somebody who died for your sins. And if you will trust in him, if you'll place your faith in him, not only will I give you the ability to regain some of my design, but I will promise you that one day you're going to a new heavens and a new earth and you will dwell with me, not as Adam and Eve did in that garden, but you will be with me in a way they never knew. You know, all the glory of that original garden does not hold a candle to what we will experience one day forever with God. God in his eternal kingdom. But I'm here to tell you today, I don't know what you're trusting in to get there. But the only acceptable means of salvation is faith in the seed of the woman that we know to be with all the certainty of God's word is Jesus Christ. He is the only means of salvation. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And if you don't know him this morning, he is offering you a way back to God. Freedom from sin and Satan and life eternal is available to you on the basis of faith in Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that you, at the very beginning... A breath after sin in the fall, you had already set in place before the foundation of the world a plan to buy us back to redeem us because you love us. God, I don't know where everybody's at in this room this morning, but I know that you do. And maybe they're in a place of regret. Maybe they're in a place of shame. Maybe they've been running from you. Maybe they've been hiding from you. But God, I praise you that you are a God even when we're running. You come to us. You seek and save the lost. And God, maybe you're drawing somebody in this room right now to yourself. Maybe they're tired of running. They're tired of the guilt. They long for freedom. I pray that they would know today freedom and forgiveness is found in your son, Jesus, who came and lived and died and defeated the grave for them. And I pray with all my heart they would trust in you today. They would know that you're a prayer away. That when they're tired of running, they can fall into your arms of forgiveness and grace. Just like Adam and Eve, come on out. There's no need to be afraid. Just own up. 
I love you. I knew what you were going to do before you ever did it. And there's freedom, there's salvation, there's forgiveness. I pray that they would trust in you. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we walk daily trusting in your word. Oh, how easily we buy into the lies of Satan. God, help us to trust, to live according to your word, that we might know your life and we might display your glory in this world as you called us to be men and women who display your glory. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. We'll have pastors here at the front who would love to talk with you, love to pray with you. Uh, Maybe you just want to pray. I I don't know what way God's working on your heart, but we got pastors here. This is your time. Know this morning, you'll never regret obeying Jesus, so you respond as we sing.